When you were watching someone die, it is a kind of rehearsal. You, you watch someone die, you are watching yourself die. I mean, this is the one thing that you know you are not going to escape. And you see that person there in the bed, getting weaker, dying, going away. You know, it, it is the way it's going to happen to you. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dow. My guest is novelist Sigrid Nunez, the author of seven novels as well as a memoir. Sigrid's 2018 novel, The Friend, won the National Book Award for Fiction and became a bestseller. That book featured an unnamed narrator caring for the dog of a close friend who had died. This fall, she has a new novel, What Are You Going Through? It's also about a friendship, this time between the narrator and an old acquaintance who's facing terminal cancer and has asked the narrator to be with her as she lives her final days before self-administering life-ending drugs. The novel, like so much of Sigrid's work, is quiet on the surface, but absolutely churning with ideas about the nature of existence, of human behavior, and the tension between wanting human connection and craving solitude. Sigrid spoke with me about this work, as well as about her past work, not only The Friend, but also Salvation City, a novel she published a decade ago about a global flu pandemic and its effect on civilization. Sigrid Nunez, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the novel. What are you going through? It's about a lot of things. Uh, and uh, I guess we should say that the title comes from Simone Wilde. Is it a quote that says, the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say, what are you going through? That's something I've actually thought a lot about as I see my neighbors since I've, I've read the book. So maybe just was that a quote that has been with you for a long time or did it come as you were writing? It's been with me for a long time. I can't remember the first time I uh, read this essay with the extraordinary title, Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. Uh, but that's where the quote is from. And uh, I was very struck by it. I always remembered it. And even when I was beginning this book and wasn't even absolutely sure what it was going to be about, um, I did know that it was going to involve the narrator having encounters with various people and listening to their stories. And um, so I had the idea of the epigraph and of using that, that question as a title for the book from, from very early on. The novel is about a lot of things, obviously, but on just a fundamental plot level, I guess we should say it's about a woman, the unnamed protagonist, the narrator, whose friend has terminal cancer. And this is a close friend, but not a best friend, I think it's fair to say. And for various reasons, the friend enlists the narrator in the task of sort of shepherding her through death. The friend has obtained pills to end her own life, but of course, this involves a lot of planning, a lot of moving pieces. Can you tell us a little more about the narrator, who and where she is in life, what she is going through? Well, the narrator, the way these two women know each other, first of all, is that they were very good friends and roommates when they were in college, and now they're in their 60s. So over those years, 
they've kept in touch, they've remained friends, but, but they haven't really been close most of that time. They live in different cities. So when, um, when the narrator's friend gets her diagnosis of cancer, that's when the narrator goes to visit her in the hospital. And, uh, you know, then throughout the novel, they become closer and closer friends. But what the, what the narrator is going through is that, you know, she's been asked by this friend to, um, to be with her during this time while she takes care of last things and considers what would be the right time for her to take these euthanasia drugs. And the narrator, the narrator doesn't really know what to say at first when she's asked to do this. And she does, she does say yes, partly, largely out of guilt about not saying no. And then she just goes through various changes. Like she thinks, oh, I'll say yes, but then she won't take the drug. So whatever. She goes through a period of denial. But as they end up together during this period of time, you know, a kind of peace descends on, on the narrator. She understands what's happening. She's not at all reluctant or unhappy to be there at this moment. And in fact, it comes to her that she's actually participating in something extremely intense, but also extremely valuable. And, uh, and she, she begins to see it as a privilege, in fact, to be with this, this person at the end of her life. And she's a writer and she's a teacher of writing. So one of the things that I thought about it as I was reading, and you know, I sort of have had this experience in my own life, like the world of writing and teaching, it feels very, I don't want to say theoretical, but it's not like always a, a visceral experience. It's not a physical experience. You're not interacting with people on a kind of flesh and blood level all the time. And so were you aware of creating this narrator, somebody who had this kind of life of the mind for maybe 70% of her <laughs> daily life, and then this other kind of existence had crept into her existence, this kind of m much more sort of on the ground, reality-based kind of life? Yes, I was, because uh, among other things, the narrator is, does, is, is, doesn't have a partner. Yeah. She has an ex who, who appears throughout the novel, but she doesn't have any children. It happens to be summertime. She's not teaching right at this moment. As far as we know, she doesn't talk about her own writing, but she's certainly not uh, engaged in some important writing project at this time. So her, her life is kind of emptied out in a certain way. It's one of the reasons why the friend thinks that she, the narrator, would be a good person to help her at this time because she isn't someone who has a family at home to take care of or a, a, a job that she has to be at every day. So yeah, so that, that, was, that was very much on my mind. <laughs> it's kind of like the the child who doesn't have a family, the, the adult child who doesn't have a family or like a traditional job is the one that has to go and take care of the ailing parent, right? It's, yes. It's, it's a yes. version of that. Yes. Your work has been compared to the novels of Rachel Cusk. I was noticing a resemblance for a while. I know people have made that comparison, but you know, when I started reading this book, there's a sense that you're in this narrator's company and she's going to take you where she wants to go with not a lot of fealty to standard plot conventions and not a lot of like obvious effort to, to sort of seduce the reader. And that I can see the sort of cuss vibe there, but your narrator is not nearly as 
stony as, as Rachel Cusk's narrator. I mean, I think this is true in, in your last book, The Friend. She's, she's cool, but there's like a hot springs underneath. So I'm curious, like, what does it feel like to write this narrator? Do you feel like you're dictating a version of yourself or is she a separate character entirely? Well, I want, about the Rachel Cusk comparisons, of which there, there have been quite a few, I agree with you. I think our sensibilities are, are really very different. But um, part of it is this idea, in, at least in the outline trilogy, where, where the narrator has a kind of passive role, and uh, it's other people's stories that they tell the narrator that get told in the story. Right. But as a matter of fact, when I finished The Friend, I thought, it's interesting. I didn't realize I was doing this, but I've gone right back to my own first novel, which came out in 1995, A Feather on the Breath of God, which is exactly that form. You have a narrator. Uh, she talks about her father. She talks about her mother. She talks about this man that she got involved with. And she's telling their stories not her own, uh, even though she is an important character. It's about listening to them and, and even writing little biographies for them. And then in another book that I wrote for Rowena, it's very similar. It's, there's a narrator who's a writer, and she is a character, but the, the, the main part of the book is to tell the story of uh, someone she knows who happens to be a woman who served as an army nurse uh, in, in Vietnam. So this has been a part of my idea of writing fiction for quite some time. And then in The Friend, once again, there is the story of the narrator, but she's writing a great deal about her dog, Apollo, and also about the men to her committed, who committed suicide. And with this last book, which is um, even more of that form of a of a narrator who's talking about encounters that she's had with other people, some of them strangers, some of them close to her, and telling their stories and reflecting on their stories. That I felt is very, very similar to the friend. The, the narrator, these two narrators seem to me to be the same narrator. And mm -hmm. in their relationship to me, and also I would say in, to the narrator in For Rowena and the narrator in A Feather on the Breath of God, I do feel very identified with these narrators, and it's not just because uh, we're we're all female and uh, and we write or grew up to be writers and we read a lot. But there's a certain kind of sensibility, the way that the narrator in uh, "What Are You Going Through" behaves, and the way she looks at the world. You know that is that is the same as the narrator in the friend, and that you know that I feel you know very very close to. And what happens in the book, there's a great deal of invention. It's, 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 it's all invention. But the sensibility and the way of looking at things and reflecting on the story that I'm telling, I do feel is very much um, my own sensibility and my own way of looking at things. Sigurd, can you read uh, just a few pages from the novel for us? Okay, I will. The part I'm reading from... That uh, doesn't really need any, any setting up. The journal I had planned to keep, a record of my friend's last days, that never happened. I started it, but almost immediately I stopped. I did not even save the few pages I had written. 
I discovered that I didn't want to make a written record after all. The reason seemed to be that I had no faith in it. From the beginning, it felt like a betrayal. I don't mean of my friend's privacy, but of the experience itself. No matter how hard I tried, the language could never be good enough. The reality of what was happening could never be precisely expressed. Even before I began, I knew that whatever I might manage to describe would turn out to be, at best, somewhere to the side of the thing, while the thing itself slipped past me, like the cat you never even see escape when you open the house door. We talk glibly about finding the right words, but about the most important things, those words we never find. We put the words down as they must be put down, one after the other, but that is not life, that is not death, one word after the other. No, that is not right at all. No matter how hard we try to put the most important things into words, it is always like toe dancing in clogs. Understood. Language would end up falsifying everything, as language always does. Why then create an inauthentic document to be taken, mistaken, by anyone who later read it, including even myself, for the truth? Something else. Writing in the journal did not have the steadying or consoling power I'd hoped for. It did not soothe me. It frustrated me instead. It made me feel dumb. Dumb and hopeless. It filled me with anxiety. What a terrible writer I had become. What if all this time we have misunderstood the story of the Tower of Babel? My ex once put the question in an essay. Behold, the people is one, and they all have one language, said God. This will not do. As one, the people might actually succeed in building the city and the heavenward tower with which they hoped to make their name. Indeed, the all-knowing knew that with a common tongue, nothing would be impossible for them. The way to stop this abomination was to replace the one language with many, and so it was done. But what if God had in fact gone even further? What if it was not just to different tribes, but to each individual human being that a separate language was given, unique as fingerprints? And step two, to make life among humans even more strifeful and confounding, he beclouded their perception of this, so that while we might understand that there are many peoples speaking many different languages, we are fooled into thinking that everyone in our own tribe speaks the same language we do. This would explain much of human suffering, according to my ex, who was being less playful than you might think. He really did believe that's how it was, each of us languaging on, our meaning clear to ourselves, but to nobody else. Even people in love, I asked, smilingly, teasingly, hopefully. This was at the very beginning of our relationship. He only smiled back. But years later, at the bitter end, came the bitter answer. People in love most of all. Thank you. It's really a stunning passage, and there are many, many of that sort. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the ex in that passage because he's kind of a shadowy figure. He's certainly not um, at the center of the book in terms of his quote-unquote story, but I think that his sort of messaging and his sensibility really permeates the book. Can you tell us about him? We have this. We have the, the storyline of the 
of the woman who's dying, but then the ex is basically an, an anti-natalist. He's a, a climate change. He's someone who's written a lot about climate change and is convinced that basically there should nobody should be on Earth, uh, you know, <laughs> in short time. Yeah, he's. Um, when I think about him, I think of the word in, enraged. Um, <laughs> so they were together um, years and years ago, and at that time he um, he's a journalist, and at that time what he uh, wrote most about was were you know aspects of the culture and the arts. But uh, as time has passed, and certainly right now during the time of this novel. He only writes and lectures about uh, climate change and other catastrophes. And is it based on just one article that he wrote? I thought that was kind of hilarious. Was I getting that right? Okay, it seems like he had sort of one big um, kind of flashy piece that he'd written about climate change, and that was kind of propelling his lecture circuit. Well, yes, actually, at at this point, yes. Right now, he's on the... Uh, a lecture tour or he, he goes wherever he's invited and gives the same talk, a talk that actually appeared as an article in the journal. Right. And, um, you know, where he expresses his, his extreme anger at the, the situation that humankind has gotten itself into and so, you know, and says there is no hope. I mean, we're not, you know, because of the way people are, there's really no way that we're going to be able to turn this around. So it's, it's the end and we are to blame. And then whenever he talks, he won't take any questions. <laughs> smart, smart man. <laughs> so the, the narrator uh, goes to one of these lectures uh, and listens only with half an ear, partly because she, she read the article. She knows what it's, a, what it's about. But at, at one point when they, when they have a conversation about it and he just expresses more anger about it, you know, she says, well, you must have some kind of hope. I mean, you know, what, why would you be going around talking about it? And he, he says that he has these two grandchildren, and he's always thinking when they get to be of a certain age, they'll, they'll be asking, what did you do? Where were you? And so that's part of his motivation. And then also he just, um, he clearly enjoys rubbing people's knows it you know he feels like people have have done such a, a, a terrible thing that they should be made uncomfortable even if it's just for the for the time of a, a lecture or to read an article to face um what they'd done and what did not have to happen if people had only listened to the science and taken care and cared enough about each other and he really feels that the only thing left for people to do is to ask forgiveness of one another and learn how to say goodbye. But he also is, thinks that people should not reproduce. Like, is he an antinatalist? Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. He is that now. Uh, he feels that because he believes that, uh, you know, in a quite a short time, um, life on earth is, is going to become uninhabitable. Um, before that, it will become grim. And to him, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to be bringing more children into the world that there are. He, in fact, did he get mad at his son because his daughter-in-law was having another child? Am I remembering that right? <laughs> Charming father-in-law. <laughs> he expresses shock and anger, which is what he's always feeling when he learns that, that his 
son and daughter-in-law are having a third child now. They, yes. Yes, but, but also he, um, he's in a, a state in which when he sees an infant, you know, he sees a, a mother or father with a, with a tiny baby, he just feels terrible. He feels terribly guilty, and he really believes that there's, there's no way that that child is going to have a, a, a good life. He thinks that child is going to grow up to suffer abominably. That that is his belief. So you have to, you know, um, you know, you have to see him in in that light, right? And so, so his point is though that, right? That you know, climate change already, the you know, the, the migration, the migration of humans in in serious trouble, which has already started because of climate change, you know, is going to produce you know millions and millions of people including children, desperately in need of care. And his idea is, shouldn't we try to take care of them instead of bringing more children into the world who, by the time they reach, you know, adulthood, middle age or whatever, might, in his words, be thinking about suing their parents for having, <laughs> for having given birth to them. Right, right. Something I think we've all contemplated in, in our own ways <laughs> with the climate change issue aside. I, I do want to talk about the role of children, especially this mother-daughter dynamic in a little bit. But just for the sake of staying on the on the subject of this book, we should say that the, the friend who is dying, and I'm not just calling everybody the friend and the woman and the narrator because I forgot their names. They actually are nameless. Is that, that right? And it was the same in the friend, right? Yes. So I'm kind of curious why you did that. But first, we should say that the woman who's dying does have a daughter uh, who she's essentially estranged from. And so part of the reason she asks uh, the narrator to to help her with this process is because she thinks it would not only does she not have the kind of closeness with the daughter, but she even says, I don't know how she would cope with her feelings. It's almost an act of, of generosity that she's would not put this burden on her. But talk a little bit about, about that relationship and what you were sort of thinking about the, the nature of children and the degree to which they are really, are they really a saving grace? I think people sometimes think that having children will redeem them or give their life a sense of purpose uh, in ways that it doesn't always. Well, in this particular case, yeah, I'm writing about a kind of relationship that I that I've seen, a parent-child relationship that I've seen, where it just doesn't work. I'm not sure who, who would be at fault. I mean, it depends on the situation and the people, but I'm, I'm not really that interested in, in who, who's at fault. But what happens is that what should happen becomes complete, completely impossible. What should happen, as everybody knows, is that Parents should love their children and children should love their parents and whatever troubles they might have in life, they should be able to hold on to that love and be there for each other from the beginning to the end. And of course, I'm happy to say it happens to a lot of people that way. And that's a wonderful thing. But you have these other situations like the one in my book between this mother and daughter where it, it just, it just doesn't work. I mean, from the beginning, I mean, the, the daughter, there is no father in the picture because um, this is a woman who got pregnant while she was very young and uh, the father didn't really want to have anything to do with it. And that was fine with her because she did not want to have him as a husband because she, she didn't love him in that way. 
And so she and her parents raise the daughter. And um, one thing that the daughter is never able to uh, get over is that missing father. Mm -hmm. And um, she blames her mother for that. And so there's that between them their whole lives. And then they just go their separate ways. I mean, sometimes they get along better, sometimes worse. But basically, it's a very bad relationship. And so by the time she's dying, she sees that, to at her, that she says, yes, if I ask my daughter to do this, out of a sense of duty, maybe she would. But it would be such a terrible thing to do to her, given the tangled nature of our relationship and how much hostility there is. There's, there is and has been. And then there's the, the fact that, you know, her daughter is the main beneficiary of her will. Right. That's a tricky situation. Yeah. So, and of course, if you're asking, you know, she's, you could, you could also say there's the, the question of the legality of it. You know, if you, um, the woman is not asking the narrator or anybody else to administer the drugs. Right. Yeah. Let's let's actually be clear what she's actually asking for. Is she asking for companionship? Like, what's what's the what's the gambit? She makes it. Yeah. She makes it very clear. She says, "I have the drugs, and I want to choose my own moment." I'm actually feeling a little better now that I've stopped taking the chemo drugs. Uh, I know I don't have that much time. I want to go someplace uh, uh, to a nice, peaceful place. And do the last things that I have to do and kind of relax. I mean, she's just been through this whole ordeal of getting her diagnosis, having her treatment, all these deciding what to do. And she feels that she, she has to have somebody in the next room. She has to have somebody in that house with her in case something goes wrong or in case everything goes wrong, as she says. But she makes it very clear that you, you won't know when I've decided to, I'm not going to prepare you and say, oh, it's going to be Tuesday at four o'clock. Right. Uh, I'm just going to choose and then you'll be there. But in a situation like that, when that happens and then you call the coroner and the police, uh, they do do an investigation. And of course, you know, it is illegal to, to help somebody die. Yeah, it's a tricky, I mean, the timing of this sort of thing is, is really complicated. I mean, you've got to get it just right. If, exactly. If, if this is something that you think about a lot, I actually do think about this. Uh, but I'm not quite sure why, but um, maybe we can talk about that in, in a minute. But yeah, it does seem to me that, you know, for all the talk about uh, having a good death and being able to control it, it's ultimately almost, it's very, very difficult to control. Exactly. And, you know, and so she's very careful. She leaves a note. Um, you know, she, she, writes the note well beforehand. And, you know, their agreement is that, as she says to the narrator, you don't know anything about this. I never said anything about this. You, we didn't plan this. You were just here with me. You didn't know I had the drugs. And then mm -hmm. you found me. But, you know, that's how, they, that's how they, they plan it. Right. And actually, it's an amazing scene where the friend posing, makes this proposition to the narrator she takes her to a restaurant it's almost like a breakup scene like she's that she asked the narrator to do this in public so the narrator doesn't get too emotional sort of the way you would take somebody out <laughs> out to dinner and and break up with them so they don't freak out in the restaurant or whatever it is so that how did you construct that scene tell us about it well I thought I thought that the moment had come for the friend to make this request of the narrator 
And, um, you know, just trying to imagine how she might do that, I just thought she would want to come, you know, they live in different cities, as I say, but she would want to come to the narrator's turf. Yeah. But would, would want it to be in some kind of neutral, I guess, place. Right. And what she, but she chooses, uh, she chooses a bar where the two of them used to hang out there's a nostalgic reason too. She chooses a bar where the two of them used to hang out when they were in school together. Partly because she want, she's in town partly to visit places that she, you know, from, from her own past and to, and to visit certain people too. Yeah. But then they, they meet in this place. And, and when the narrator says, um, after she gets this request from her friend and she says, I wish we weren't in a public place right now. And, and, and the friend says, but I chose it on purpose precisely because I didn't want us to get too emotional. And she also says, you don't have to give me an answer now. And the thing is that the, the friend had asked her closest friends if they would do this for her and be with her. And they had said no. Yeah. So, she, so she says to the narrator, I know it won't hurt your feelings, but you were not my first choice. That's a stunning moment to be told, to be asked to do this monumental thing, but then told that you weren't the first pick. Like, <laughs> how did that come into your mind? Uh, it, it just did, you know, because when I was writing the scene, I just, you know, tried to imagine it. And I figured, well, why is she asking this person? What about other people in her life, people much closer? And I knew, I knew why she couldn't ask her daughter, but what about other people? Yeah. And I, it just seemed really true to me. I, I mean, the thing is that, the narrator is somebody who hasn't been seeing her every day, hasn't been real close to her during this time, whereas the good friends have. So, it, you know, the, the, the dying woman thinks it would probably be easier for someone who hasn't been uh, close to me recently to do this than for those who have. And that's just an instinct that I, as the writer, had as to how it, 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 it would be, it might be. You write, death happens to every one of us, yet it remains the most solitary of human experiences. Do you ever wonder if living a life of solitude, of relative solitude, prepares you better for death? Probably not. Because who knows, really? You know, it's so, it's so hard to know what you'll be like at that extraordinary moment. So I, I, don't, I don't really know. I'm not sure that anything really prepares you. Yeah, I mean, she also says the real reason I agreed to help my friend is that in her place, I would have hoped to be able to do exactly what she now wanted me to do. So the narrator can't escape the feeling that this is a kind of rehearsal for her, for her own death. And I wonder, like, if part of her inability to, to keep a journal was that it was just such a mishmash of experiences. Was this somebody else dying? Was this a kind of premonition of her own death? Like, as you were writing, were you keeping in mind all these different elements, or did they sort of just kind of come about naturally as as the characters walked and talked? Well, they did. They did come. They did come about naturally. I mean, they became kind of you know cumulative. But I would think anyway, even if I hadn't written this. That particular scene that you are when you were watching someone die, 
it is a kind of rehearsal. That you, you watch someone die, you are watching yourself die. I mean, this is the one thing that you know you are not going to escape. And you see that person there in the bed, getting weaker, dying, going away. You know, it, it is the way it's going to happen to you. And so I, I, do, I do think that, that that's something that anyone watching another person die would feel. The, the ex also at some point says, I know this must be very hard for you, he says to the narrator, uh, what you're going through, but I, I would want the same thing too. So all, all three of these characters feel that way, what, meaning, you know, I too would like to choose the moment of my death, if if it means avoiding a long, slow, painful death. You know, the, 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 di- the dying woman, you know, the reason why she wants to take the, the euthanasia drugs is because she knows for sure that she's dying, that there is no hope for her. And she already has been suffering physically horribly for quite a while. And she knows that she's not going to you know, have a peaceful death. And her last weeks, months, whatever, she's not going to be herself. She's not going to have any control. She's not going to have any kind of peace. She's just going to be in agony. And, um, you know, I mean, when people decide that they want to choose their moments, that is, that is you know, usually the reason, because they, they don't want to go through the horrible pain and deterioration. And they also don't want to put the people that they love through that. How much of this do you think about in your own life? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about how you are going to die and what kinds of measures you might take to make it as as painless and under your own management as possible? I would identify with the with the woman in in my book, it just just as the narrator says and just as her ex says, if I were in her situation, I would want to do what she wants to do. You know, it really depends. I mean, there, there are, you know, there, there, there are certain kinds of um, physical conditions that you could have what it, where there might be a possibility of, you know, as they say, making the dying person as comfortable as possible. But if the only thing that's happening is this fear and this pain, you know, prolonged by modern medicine, Yeah. you know, endlessly prolonged by modern, modern medicine. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be, um, you know, an, an ideal way to lead life at all. Does it make you angry? Like, I have to say, I, I think about this kind of stuff a lot. And this is so obvious as to be banal, but it is rather mind blowing that it, it's it considered humane and like an ethical no-brainer to put a pet down, an animal down who is suffering, but you would never do that for a person. And I just, I, with the way that medical quote unquote advancements have changed the, the end of life, you know, what it, the, the amount of time that is considered end of life and just the way we kind of can linger for so long. How have we not had a more sort of sustained and open kind of cultural, societal, political conversation about how to handle this? Like, do you foresee a time where this being able to administer your own 
pills and, and essentially kill yourself will just be kind of more normal than not? I think it's possible. You know, I guess it depends on the society, the culture, the, the, the government, you know, wh- where you are on the planet. But uh, there is something about, uh, you know, I, I, I know a doctor who said that, you know, uh, just the, the sheer amount of um, money and effort in the healthcare system that goes into prolonging the lives of the dying, yeah, as opposed to helping everyone else in need, is a crime in itself. So, but I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, you, you feel that the, that reform would be very hard in coming, partly because of this, um, perfectly reasonable fear that people have, uh, of it possibly not being the choice of the dying, you know, of it, of it being a situation where others are, are pressuring the person to make that decision. I mean, in other words, you, you only want this to happen. If the the person themselves are making this decision for their own good reasons, and I think that that's that's the big stumbling block is this idea that 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 uh, that people are afraid that uh, uh, here you'll have incredibly vulnerable people under all kinds of pressures, some of it nefarious, to make this decision. Have you been in a situation? Where you were a caregiver or, or somebody accompanying somebody as they died, either with a parent or a relative or a friend? Um, no, not like this. I, I mean, I was at my, my father's uh, bedside, but I wasn't his, his caregiver. And, um, and my, mother, my mother died suddenly at home. Uh, she was in her mid-90s. So, no, I've, I've never been in this kind of situation. So let's talk about the role of of children. The the narrator, um, and this is true of of several of your narrators and several of your books, um, is she does not have children. I don't want to say she lives a solitary life because that sounds like she's a recluse or something. But she's at peace with this, and uh, it's it's definitely I think part of her identity and part of her character. But you know, in terms of how you infuse your own sort of thinking about these things into her. Is there something about dying and really having that be the end of the line that changes the way she lives or that you live or that any of us who are, I, I'm also one of these people. <laughs> do, is, do, you, do you think the sort of contours of our, of our existential outlook are, are different? I think they must be. I have thought about that, how completely different it must be. Um, for someone who's coming to the end of their life and they have children and they have grandchildren, maybe even great grandchildren, it, it just seems quite must be, you know, quite different in, in in all ways from someone who doesn't have any offspring. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. Um, I, I'm not sure that I can take it any further than that. Uh, you know, in 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 my book, people who the the for example, the, the, the dying friend, uh, she says, I, I feel very sorry for, I don't, I don't like your ex, I never liked your ex, but I, I do pity him right now if he, you know, if he has these grandchildren and he feels, if he has to feel that he wishes they were never born because they're going to suffer so much when they're older. And then she adds, on the other hand, I, 
I have to say, I'm, I'm glad I don't have any grandchildren to worry about myself. Yeah. You know, precisely because of the, of the terror that we have about, uh, about the future on this, on this planet. But I, I do think there has to be some, some large comfort, I think, in, in, uh, in knowing that you've come to the end of your life, but the people you love are, are still carrying on and having children. I mean, I, it just seems natural to me that there must be some real, real comfort in that, 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 is not, that is just not there for the person who's, who's never had any children. So you wrote an essay for a book that I edited about choosing not to have children. It was uh, 16 writers on the decision not to have kids. And you wrote a beautiful piece. It was called The Most Important Thing. You took that from a quote from Alice Monroe, who talks about shooing her children away as she wrote and how this made them know that they were not the most important thing. And she felt conflicted about that. You, you wrote in your piece you pose the question, can I be the kind of mother I would have wanted to have? Just give them lots and lots of love. Oh, this I believed I could do, but I also believed that writing had saved my life. And if I could not write, I would die. As long as this was true, and so long as writing continued to be the enormously difficult thing it has always been for me, I didn't think I could be a real mother, not the kind I would have wanted for my child. So you probably wrote that, I don't know, five years ago, whenever that came out four or five years ago. Do you still feel that way? Is that pretty, um, does that stand up to the test of time? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I felt that way when I was much younger. And I still feel that way. You know, I, it's, it's, not, it's not as though I, I, I'm not aware that I, I missed a great experience, uh, of, you know, one of the great human experiences, having children. But I, 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 I haven't regretted not having children because I thought that it was it was the right thing for me, you know. In other words, I I regret it in the sense of oh, I missed this you know extraordinary experience, but I I didn't regret in the sense of oh I should have because it it, it wasn't right for me. So yes, I do I do still feel that way. One of the criticisms, or at least we can call it an observation, about uh, that anthology that I, that I did that you were in was that these were a bunch of writers writing about not to have kids. And so the fact that they were writers made their experience not really reflective of most people's. And my answer to that was, well, you know, writers are the ones we enlist to write about things. And I wanted to have real writers talking about this. Um, but I think that there was sort of an immediate assumption on some people's parts that, well, if you're a writer, you don't really need kids or you're just sort of a weirdo or a misfit anyway. So it kind of makes sense. But the fact is that most people do want kids and do have them. And that includes writers, most writers, most creative people, most artists do have children as well. But I more and more I'm wondering, like, what percentage of them actually do a great job uh, <laughs> raising those kids? And that's kind of true for everyone, not just creative people. But do you see a sort of, um, is there a sort of kind of false sense that that one can kind of have it both ways? And this goes for men as well as women, I think. You know, can you be truly creative in an artistic sense while also being a good parent? Oh, I'm sure you can. I think that one of the big differences is that, um, okay, so during the time that it would have been possible for me to have a child, you know, although I know 
other people, other women, who have been quite successful as single parents, uh, it was always very clear to me that I would never be that kind of person. I was only going to be able to have a family if I had a very strong, supportive partner. And that partner would have to have been supportive, of course, of, of the family, children, but also of my work. Now, I never met anyone like that. <laughs> Has anybody? Has, does that person exist? Oh, I think it, I think it does. I mean, I think it does. And, and because also the culture changed. I mean, because when I was young, you know, the understanding was, was very clear. I mean, you know, you, you, you weren't going to have a, a partner who was going to be, a, you know, a, a parent who, who did an equal amount of work. I mean, the, the, the children were going to be, the, the, the burdens of household and raising children were going to be on the woman. And that has changed. You know, I mean, you, uh, uh, men are younger men are, are different from the men of my generation, let alone the generation before mine. You know, they've been educated. They've been reformed. They they have changed. So I think now, with the with if you have two parents, that you, that it is possible to have the children and have the careers and the the uh, uh, careers and the arts and the literary lives. I think, but it but it, but that really has changed. And of course, you know, many people will tell you, well, it's far from perfect. Still, well, I'm sure that's true. But um, the thing is that. You know, when I was younger, it was a given. And that's why for me to make, you know, my decision, it was based on that given. Either I could be, you know, a, a single parent, which I would have been horrific and there wouldn't have been any writing career, I'm sure. Or I could have, you know, had a family with, with someone who, who was not going to share the burdens. You wrote a, a memoir about your relationship with Susan Sontag. Uh, you lived with her. You were involved with uh, with her son, and you ended up um, living in an apartment, uh, all, all three of you, and you wrote a, a wonderful memoir about that time and about her relationship with her son and with you. And I, I'm wondering if that also shapes your your view. I mean, Susan Sontag was somebody who, I think she famously said, I don't, I'm going to hesitate to, you know, Put any sort of judgment on her mothering because I certainly didn't know her and I'm not in a position to say. But I do remember there was some famous quote. She said, "I never cooked. I don't cook for my son. I warm for him." <laughs> so she would like put things in the oven. Did you? What kinds of observations did you have about her life as public figure, as an as an artist and a and a mother? Like how how well was she able to pull that off? Well, you know that it was an exceptional situation. Because, well, see, by the time I, uh, I knew David, I mean, you know, he was in his mid-20s. But, you know, I, I write about this, and other people have written about this, and David has written about this. Uh, you know, it was an extremely difficult, troubled uh, mother-son relationship um, you know, from the beginning. And there were, and first there were three of them, but then there was a divorce, and Susan got wanted and got custody of David. But her attitude towards mothering was not like anyone else's. You know, when he was very young, she, she left him. She went, she went off to, be, uh, to live in Europe for a while. Um, there were other periods in his childhood where she, where she did that. I don't know. I've never known another mother who would, who would do that. 
you know, she was very determined uh, not to be like other women and other mothers. Um, you know, she she talked about once a when when her son was very young and a, and a group of other women actually attempted an intervention. They came to her and they they tried to tell her that she should be different, that she, that this was not good for her child, and and. Um, as she told the story, she laughed it off. She thought they were absolutely ridiculous. She was right, they were wrong. But of course, that never would have happened if there hadn't been, you know, some, some difficulty there. So, you know, I, I couldn't imagine using her as any kind of model for how to be a mother. I, she was, as I say in the book, she was the least maternal person I ever met in my life. So for me, I thought, you know, there were other things about her that, uh, you know, that I, in which I thought she made a terrific model. But as a mother, absolutely not. Really the complete opposite. Do you think that if she were of a different generation or if she hadn't become a mother at such a young age, she would have had the idea that she could have kind of managed the sort of equal partnership, raising a family that you described a few minutes ago? Would she have attempted that to be the sort of, you know, two, you know, both, both parents, you know, sharing relatively equally and, and having careers or would she have, <laughs> would she have been able to see through that if she were say 30 years younger than she was? I don't think so. It just wasn't in her nature. Yeah. She had no, she had no interest in uh, nuclear familyhood and she had no interest in being a, a maternal parent. You know, uh, what, she, what she wanted was for, for uh, David to grow up as fast as possible and be a kind of partner. You know, she herself often talked about how, how miserable her own childhood was and how she didn't see any value in childhood. And she just wanted to get it behind her as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, she behaved that way towards, towards her son, too. And she, you know, she, she also would say, I don't want David to think of me as his mother. I, I would rather he think of me as goofy older sister or something. As if she, didn't, she, didn't, she didn't want to be a mother or a parent to, to anybody. It's amazing how somebody so brilliant could have such a blind spot in thinking that that was not going to cause harm. Well... It's because, on the other hand, she also believed that she was a great mother. I mean, it, that was something she also said very, very often, that she knew that she, you know, that other people could point fingers or her son could make complaints, but she knew that, she, that she'd been a terrific parent, a terrific mother. So it was a, you know, it was a, as I say, it's like her situation, that situation is really different from from, from any other one that I've ever, that I've mm. ever witnessed. Mm -hmm. I also think, too, lately, it, it, it seems like there are maybe two ways to do it. If you are a, a woman who you know, has certain ambitions, if you are a quote-unquote high achiever, an artist, you can either like, have your kids really early and kind of get them raised before your career really takes off, or you can get your career going and have them late. And of course, that's always a gamble because you might not be able to have them at all. I, I wonder sometimes if women over the last 
40 years or so have been sold this idea that, you know, you, you get your career going, you start having kids in your early 30s, and then everything will work out when in fact, that it arguably is the worst time to do it. And, I, and I'm bringing this up because I think you, your characters, and I get the sense that you as a person are, are so content with having just skipped all of that. Is there a level in which you kind of sit back and, and watch people try to thread the needle just right and think like, oh, gosh, I, <laughs> I sometimes feel I think I'm just projecting my own feelings onto you as I ask this question. But I sometimes think like, oh, my gosh, I got away with murder, like that I that I was able to just take a pass on this whole experience. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I, I guess I share some of that. I think I think it's interesting that um, when I was uh, an undergraduate and right right after that. And uh, Elizabeth Hardwick had been my professor at Barnard College. Uh, and this was actually before I met uh, Susan Sontag. And, and Elizabeth Hardwick was the first professional writer I ever met. And um, I remember when I, I, I told her that I, you know, I, I had met this man and he was a boyfriend and we were moving in together. And um, she was very impatient with that. And, you know, she, the moving in, you know, and I remember she said, you girls, you girls, you want to set up your domestic lives before you set up your professional lives. And I'm telling you, it's a, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So I thought that was, that was interesting. I don't know. I, I mean, I, 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 at that time, you know, it was so common and common for the first time that people couples would, you know, set up house together without getting married. So that was the generation that started doing that. But I remember I was, I was very struck by that, her idea that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking about setting up a professional. I wasn't even, you know, I wasn't thinking about that at all. But I didn't see that there would be a contradiction mm. between, you know, having children. That's one, but we weren't getting married, you know, we just, living together, but I, 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 see where, I see why she would have thought that, though, because she would have thought that that man is going to be so demanding, and there's a lot of truth in that, too. I know you say, I can't remember if this is in The Friend or if this is in What Are You Going Through? You're talking about a student. You talk a lot about your, your students, and I want to talk about that, but you talk about a student in particular who, you know, this is a sort of template student. You've seen this more than once. You know, she has a project she's working on. You know, she's a former student. She writes and says, oh, I, I just to update on you on my life. I have this project I'm working on, but I am having a baby. So I'm going to put it off for a few years and then get back to it. And then you hear from her again in a few years and she's had another baby and she's put it off. Like that, that is a thing that you see in women artists and I, you don't see it as much in men. I mean, I think at the end of the day, women are hampered by parenthood in ways that men simply are not yes and it's just fundamentally unfair i don't think it's necessarily fixable i'm not sure we can socially engineer all of it away but um it is i think it's worth uh, lamenting even if we can't repair it yes it's still true i mean as i said before it's not the way it was it's much better but um i was struck by that because it didn't just happen once. It happened on a regular basis, exactly that way. I'll get back to this, and then the next thing I hear, they've, they've had a, a, a second child. That's, it's happened a lot. 
So what kind of teaching do you do both of your, in both the friend and what are you going through? Uh, there's a lot of talk about students and, and teaching. What is your life like in that regard right now? Well, right now um, I'm teaching remotely. My one uh, graduate fiction writing workshop at uh, BU and um, just this semester. I've been teaching at BU since uh, 2011, every fall semester. This is the first time that I'm not commuting there once a week, but teaching on the computer. And I've done, you know, I've done a lot of teaching elsewhere. I've done workshops at NYU and Princeton and Columbia and uh, the New School, quite a few other places. But right now I'm just doing BU. So you you write a lot about uh, writing and writers, often with a lot of rueful humor about what often feels like the fruitlessness of the whole enterprise. Most of these people are not living glamorous lives. They're actually struggling, juggling teaching jobs, low-paying assignments, harboring professional jealousies well into middle age. Uh, But your last novel, The Friend, won the 2018 National Book Award for fiction and was a bestseller. Has that changed your life as a writer on a day-to-day basis anyway? Not really on a day-to-day basis. The the biggest change with that uh, was that before, before I had uh, work that had been translated into seven languages. And after that prize, I now have uh, about 25 uh, different translations. So uh, that wouldn't have happened without the attention from the prize. And I get more invitations now. Well, not now because, you know, we, we're in the I know, that's bad time. Okay, you, can't go all the, you can't go to all these countries that are publishing your book. So from the time that that happened, I was getting more invitations to, to travel and give readings and talks and whatever. But other than that, no, there, there hasn't been any change. Because first of all, the, um, the, friend, uh, the National Book Award was, uh, you know, in, in November 2018. And I had already started uh, writing this, what are you going through? I was already well launched on it. It, it didn't change my writing or my, my, my day-to-day structure in, in any way. If this award had come when I was much younger, who knows what changes there might have been. But coming at this, this point, you know, where I had already written so many books um, and was already well launched on this eighth novel, uh, it, it didn't. It didn't really change my writing life. Has your writing life, or just your experience of being a writer, been affected just by the changes in the way people read? I mean, I don't think um, I don't think it's any revelation to say that the nature of audience and readership is quite different today than it was thirty years ago, maybe even ten years ago. Is that something that, that you're aware of? Do you have a sense of people, like the lack of attention span or just the way that the media covers ideas and, and literature? Has, has that affected you or is that something that frustrates you at all? You know, I don't, I don't really see it so much. I, I'm, I'm always, you know, at, at this point, I'm always kind of su- surprised when, when when people want to read my book. I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> you know, because I mean, the, the reason is that there's so much out there. I mean, the idea of, of getting attention for anything that you write, it just seems kind of a miracle. And because of that, because of the, the, the sheer volume and all the 
you know, the, the pulls on everybody's attention that keeps increasing and that is so different from, you know, like 30 years ago, you are much more dependent on, uh, on the people who are doing that, that work of promotion for you. You know, you realize that it's all about them. How, you know, what can they do to make your book stand out? And um, that just isn't something that I really had that much on my mind when I was, when I was first writing. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just so, uh, you know, and also there's something so um, arbitrary about, uh, about publishing. I mean, there are, there are these books that, uh, that, that, that the writer and the publisher and, and certain readers would think, oh, this is definitely going to um, do well because it's something people really want and it's very good and so on. And then for, what, for reasons that are never really all that clear, it's rejected by the public. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't do well at all. And then I think people have fewer and fewer chances now. You know, I mean, if you, if you publish a book and it doesn't do well, maybe you'll, you'll get a second chance. But if that one doesn't do well, you may not be able to publish another book at all. So what do you tell your students? Do you sometimes feel like you shouldn't even be teaching them this stuff because it's just going to make their lives harder? Well, I just, you know, the thing about the classroom and the workshop is that, uh, you know, we don't really, we don't really talk about that. You know, and I don't, I don't really want to talk about it, partly because of what I just said about it all being so arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, who knows? The thing is also because um, I remember this even from being a student myself. You can have a, a student writer handing in work for a whole semester in which, frankly, None of it is good. None of it is working. It's terrible. Everything is wrong. And that same student could keep on plugging away and X number of years down the road, maybe a few years, maybe many years, will produce excellent work. Yes, that's very There's true. no connection. Right. There's no connection. Where, and you can also have somebody who's the star of the class, let's say, who actually never grows much beyond that. And so they don't really improve, and they don't become a very good writer. They, they always had some talent, but the, for some reason it never really flowers. So, so that's very helpful to me because you can treat every single one of these people the same. You know, all of them are capable of becoming this terrific writer down the road. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how bad that what they just handed in. It doesn't matter that when they talk about fiction, they don't seem to know what they're talking about. People really, this is. I mean, it isn't true for other arts, let's say, but with writing, it is, it is absolutely true. You can make this extraordinary progress. You can have these incredible breakthroughs, and nobody can really predict what's going to cause them or why they happen or whatever, but I've seen it so often. Yeah, that's really true. On this show, we tend to get into conversations about the the quote-unquote culture wars or identity politics and that sort of thing. And I'm very glad that we've stayed away from that mostly in this conversation. But I do want to ask you, you know, there's a figure in, in the friend, the, the one, the, the man who has, um, who has died and the, the narrator is, has, has his dog. He's, he's a very prominent figure in the book, even though he's no longer alive. And one of his He's constantly complaining about students, um, you know, not being able to teach them anything and their sensitivities and the trigger warnings and that they only want to read about themselves, cultural appropriation and this and that. 
Um, it's very funny the way he's constantly ranting about it, but I wonder if that's something that you've encountered or if you even care what you might have to say about that whole ecosystem. Oh, I, I think it's, I, you can't really avoid it. You know, yeah, it's, it's troubling because it's, uh, it's, so, it's so complicated. And, um, you know, I, I'm not even sure that everybody even knows what they're talking about. You know, like it, it's what troubles me is that I, I feel like um, I, well, there was somebody who was doing an interview with me. And for some reason, she said, so the kind of book that, that you like or that you approve of or that you think should be written, something, you know, something along that line would be an earnest book. Right. Ouch. <laughs> and I, it was so, it was so broad, right? So I, I said, well, no, I, I wouldn't think that an earnest book was superior to a not earnest book. I, I wouldn't even know what book, you know, a, you can't talk about books in that kind of, you know, general way. So it, it all depends on the book or the work or the writing or the artwork or, that you're talking about. And people seem to want to make these incredibly general rules, you know, and, and sort of abstract statements about what the writer should do or shouldn't do or can do or can't do or what is and isn't cultural appropriation and who owns what. And, and it, it, I, just, I just don't really understand. I mean, it depends on, it depends on the writer. It depends, it depends on, the, on the book. It depends on what the writer was trying to do. So I, I find that, that, you know, that, that kind of way of looking at it very difficult. And also I find, you know, I, I discover I'm a pretty good compartmentalizer. You know, I mean, other people aren't. But I really can read Hemingway and admire Hemingway uh, while being appalled by Hemingway the person. But I don't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't destroy his work for me. You know, when I, I, I read some, some outlandish sexist or homophobic thing that he's said, it doesn't make me want to throw the books out, you know? But other people don't feel that way. I mean, it's like, it's like this taint, you know? There's some, some quality to it that, uh, that, that the reader really disapproves of, and for good reason, I'm saying. And when did you start noticing that? Did you start noticing it in the last few years, or would you say that this has been ongoing? What in particular? Well, the 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 idea that you are not you can, either cannot or are not allowed to enjoy or appreciate a work of art uh, if it's written by some kind of morally compromised person. I think it's been go at this point. I think it's been going on for a really, really long time. And I guess the other thing that makes it so unworkable is people themselves who are, you know, 99% of them morally compromised. Right. I mean, people are bad, you know. I mean, you, you know, like, you'd have to, you know, they'd be very, you know, people are just not saintly. And, you know, you would have to, you would really, I, I guess that's the other thing that troubles me about it is that it's not, these blunt weapons that we're using are not um, fairly employed. You know, it's just some people, you know, their 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 morally compromised positions or their bad behavior is is uh, pointed to, and then they are attacked. But but you know, there are plenty of other people that aren't. They somehow they don't come up on onto the chopping block. 
So it is, and it's, it's by definition, it's a completely unfair process. And that's the other thing that, that bothers me about it. Yeah, in The Friend, the narrator describes what she likes about the writing of, of one of her students. And she says that the writing is good for three main reasons, a lack of sentimentality, a lack of self-pity, and a sense of humor. And you mentioned that uh, Kundera said, you know, it's because a person has a sense of humor that we feel we can trust them. And I think this is very true of your writing. But your humor is very subtle. It's very dry. Have you ever encountered the problem of people not picking up on it, thinking that you're earnest, which is such a terrible <laughs> word. I think for the most part, people have, have gotten the humor and have appreciated it. You published a novel in 2010 called Salvation City about a flu pandemic that brings the U.S. to its knees politically, economically, and all the rest. Uh, what is it like uh, to sit here now um, uh, locked inside, uh, thinking about the fact that you sort of called this 10 years ago. Well, it does, it, in the beginning, it felt very strange. Now I'm used to it. But, uh, well, you know, when I decided to write that book, um, it seemed to me that it was common knowledge that this was going to happen. I mean, you know, like in the last uh, seven months or whatever, people keep saying, Bill Gates predicted this. Bill Gates predicted this. Well, no, he didn't. Neither did I. You know, science predicted it. It was there. Dr. Fauci was talking about this um, way back before I wrote, you know, Salvation City. And that's how I knew that I knew that there was this scientific opinion out there or this scientific knowledge that it was not a question of if, but when we were going to have another global pandemic like the one 100 years ago, and that we should be prepared for it, all, all these things. So I have always had this idea that sometime in my lifetime, this was, you know, a likelihood. And, um, you know, whatever I knew about the great flu, which I did read about, fascinated me, you know, and Knowing that Mary McCarthy, just just to name one person, Mary McCarthy lost both of her parents in that flu. William Maxwell lost his mother in that flu. There were a lot of orphans that came out of that flu, and that's what I, you know, what I thought would be an interesting story to have this this character who is orphaned by the flu and who also uh, is a victim of it and becomes very ill. And then what I had to do was imagine what it would be like. In this country. Okay, the other thing I knew very, very well was the horrendous broken healthcare system that we had. So, my novel, Salvation City, is not a futuristic novel or a, a, you know apocalyptic or dystopian novel. It's really a what if novel. Like, what if this happened today? It's not. It's not supposed to be like some you know, like a science fiction kind of novel. And I have to tell you, it was. Very easy for me to imagine what it would be like if, if that were to happen here. And as it turns out, you know, the things that I thought would happen have happened. The only, the only, one thing that, that really does amuse me is that I thought, oh, I will have the president of the United States come down with the flu, with the, you know, with the pandemic flu. So I did. So the president in my novel gets the flu, gets the virus. But in my novel, it's a woman. <laughs> so I guess. <laughs> Have you thought a lot about death during this time? 
has your novel um, and its dealings with end of life had any, has that colored your experience of, of these last several months? Yeah, it has, it has to some extent. I think like a lot of people I know, uh, you know, right at the beginning here in the, you know, what was the epicenter of New York, you know, particularly, you know, uh, somebody, somebody who was considered a vulnerable, you know, because, you know, being, being a certain age and then also, um, you know, having had a medical condition, like a lot of people I knew, there, there was the sense that, oh, this could, I could be one of these people who's going to die of COVID and I should think about that and I should protect myself from it, of course, but I should also prepare for it. So I, I did, I did have that. Now things have improved in this part of the world, but now, you know, things are becoming frightening again, second wave, third wave, whatever people are calling it, or continuation of the first wave, but this, this spike in infections and this, these predictions of a very dark and fearful winter, uh, you know, so who knows, that could get the, the front of my, my mind again quite easily. Well, I have been very glad to uh, have this novel to read during these months. It certainly didn't take many months. It, I, I ran through it really quite quickly, even though um, I wouldn't say that it's, it's not something that you would call a, a fast read, but um, it was so compelling and I really, I, I couldn't put it down and it just, it has stayed with me um, for a long time since. So, so thank oh. you so much for writing it. And thank you so much. Thank you. And um, thank you for speaking with me on the podcast. That was my interview with Sigrid Nunez. Her new novel, What Are You Going Through, was published in September by Riverhead Books. Her 2018 novel, The Friend, won the National Book Award for Fiction. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. Meanwhile, you can find it on its own website, theunspeakablepodcast.com, or on any of the usual spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.